enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. in the home stretch for the month of February, and this means that I can still squeeze in an episode for Black History Month. When I'm putting together these podcasts, I really try to include information about the people who haven't always gotten credit for their astronomy work, and people who contributed to the field of astronomy who weren't white and European, so this really is an opportunity to dig into that mission some more. I'll be talking about African-American astronomers, astronauts, and astrophysicists. If I went into every member of NASA who's black, this would just be a list of names, and that's not what I'm aiming for with this. Nor is this an exhaustive list. It's more focusing on the historical contributions that African Americans made to the study of space. The early stuff is pretty rife with racism, which I think is unsurprising when you consider the history of America, but I'm pretty excited to talk about people today who were doing such amazing work for the field of astronomy and serving as role models for African Americans and black women who wanted to have careers in STEM. A lot of the initial names came from a list on ThoughtCo titled African Americans in Astronomy and Space, but I built myself into a maze of research for sure. <laughs> this is also kind of this also kind of turned into a recap episode of how much information do I remember talking about in other episodes? Because honestly, a lot of the research I have mentioned had a ton of people contributing to every step in the process. Studying X-rays, or the sun's corona, or eclipses, or orbital trajectories, or any of the millions of experiments that have been in space or directed at space, all had hundreds of people pouring time, energy, and brain power into them. A few people get credit, usually, but a lot of unknown research students gave their time to further our knowledge of space. A big name on a paper is never the only name that went into the process of research. This episode will try to uncover at least some contributions made by African-American space nerds. Let's start with some astronomers. Benjamin Banneker was born in 1731 in Baltimore. He was a free man. His mother had been a free woman whose mother was white and father was a freed slave, and an African-American person's status at the time depended on whether their mother was free or a slave. She was free, so Banneker was free. Banneker would eventually inherit the farm he was raised on from his father, who was a freed slave from Guinea. By the way, at the time, Baltimore County had a population that was about 200 free black people, 4,000 slaves, and 13,000 white people. Just to put in perspective the kind of demographics Banneker was facing. He built the first clock ever built in America in 1753. It was a wooden clock, and I mean entirely wood, and it kept perfect time for 40 years. <laughs> he was really good at math. He attended a one-room Quaker schoolhouse for a while in his childhood and studied on his own enough that he was encouraged to pursue astronomy by a Quaker amateur astronomer named George Ellicott, whose family owned grist mills near Banneker's farm. Banneker started making astronomical calculations in 1788, when Banneker was in his 50s, with books that Ellicott lent him. 
Banneker almost accurately predicted a 1789 eclipse. It turned out that the error had been the fault of his expert sources, not his own calculations, so he actually worked out the eclipse better than the well-known mathematicians and astronomers. I've talked before about eclipses and how hard they are to predict, even with Saros and Exelegmo cycles and computers and such, so this was extremely impressive. George Ellicott had a brother, named Andrew, who led a mission in 1791 to survey the new federal land that would become Washington, D.C. Banneker joined Andrew Ellicott on this mission. A newspaper at the time printed a report of the survey that said Ellicott was, quote, attended by Benjamin Banneker, an Ethiopian, whose abilities as a surveyor and an astronomer clearly prove that Mr. Jefferson's concluding that race of men were void of mental endowments was without foundation. Yikes. So first of all, Banneker was an Ethiopian. Second of all, that's pretty fucked up, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, who was president at the time. In 1792, Banneker had handwritten a manuscript for the Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Almanac and Ephemers, which he published annually through 1797, so six copies in 28 editions. That first 1792 almanac he sent to Jefferson, though, with a letter that challenged Jefferson's ideas about racial inferiority. A few sources I found say that Jefferson was basically like, yeah, you're right, you're amazing, and that Jefferson had actually recommended that Banneker join Ellicott's survey mission of Washington, D.C. Banneker and Jefferson may have corresponded about abolishing slavery, too. Banneker died in 1806 at age 75. We now have to skip ahead a ways in time, unfortunately, because I couldn't immediately find black astronomers working in the 1800s in America. Ununfortunately, we get to talk about a few folks who have a movie about them. Perhaps you heard of it. Hidden Figures came out in 2016, a little bit over a year ago, and it was a really good movie about the African-American women who were employed by NASA as computers in the 1950s and 60s. Specifically, Hidden Figures focused on Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn. Katherine Johnson is still alive as of this recording, and she's turning 100 this year. Johnson, Jackson, and Vaughn were just three examples of the many, many black women who performed calculations for the American space program. Vaughn was the head of the all-black West Area Computing Section at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics' Langley Laboratory in West Virginia. NACA was the organization that preceded NASA. This was during segregation, so the computers Vaughn oversaw were all black women because they weren't allowed in the same building as white people. Vaughn hired Mary Jackson in 1951 and Katherine Johnson in 1953. A lot of their story is covered in Hidden Figures, and I highly recommend it. The actresses are amazing, and the story is, of course, phenomenal. I'll just mention the quick highlights for each woman. Dorothy Vaughn was the head of West Computing until segregated facilities were abolished in 1958, and then she and many of her other former West Computers joined the new Analysis and Computation Division of NASA, where Vaughn served as a Fortran programmer until she retired in 1971. She never had another management position at NASA after the West Computing thing ended, even though she sought those opportunities. Vaughn died in 2008 at age 98. Mary Jackson worked in the West Computing Building for two years before switching to work in the supersonic pressure tunnel, and after managing to take additional educational courses at the All-White College, she became NASA's first black female engineer in 1958. She, too, couldn't break into management in her field, so she took a demotion to work as Langley's Federal Women's Program Manager in 1979, where she had an impact on NASA's hiring practices and promotions of female mathematicians, engineers, and scientists. 
She retired in 1985 with a ton of awards and accolades. She died in 2005 at age 83. Katherine Johnson was working at West Computing when, in 1957, the Russians got Sputnik up into orbit. Johnson provided some of the math for the 1958 document, Notes on Space Technology, which was part of a lecture series delivered by engineers in the Space Task Group, and when they became NASA, Johnson came with them. She did trajectory analysis of the 1961 Freedom 7 mission, which was America's first human spaceflight mission with Alan Shepard, and she calculated the orbital flight for John Glenn's 1962 flight as well. She got credit for her work as the author of 26 research reports, which was the first time a woman in the flight research division had gotten co-author credit. She's spoken about her greatest contribution to space exploration, which she says is her calculations that helped sync Apollo's lunar lander with the command and service module that were orbiting the moon. Just try to picture it. So the module was orbiting the moon, and then she had to connect the lunar lander with it. The lunar lander had to launch back up and hit that moving target. Jesus. Johnson retired in 1983 after 33 years at Langley, and in 2015, Mr. Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is America's highest civilian honor. One last astronomer to highlight, Dr. Arthur Bertram Cuthbert Walker II, which is a hell of a name. He was in the U.S. Air Force in 1962 and helped develop instruments for a satellite investigation of the Van Allen belts, which I've talked about in episode 11. They're the belts of radiation in Earth's atmosphere. Walker was a solar physicist, so it makes sense he'd care about atmospheric radiation. He taught physics at Stanford, including some practical astronomy courses at the Student Observatory, and he encouraged minorities and women in his classes to pursue STEM careers. Sally Ride was actually one of his students. Walker also helped develop solar telescopes, which were used in 1987 to take the first detailed pictures of the sun's outer atmosphere. You should never look at the sun, but when you inevitably try to look at the sun, just picture how bright that is. Getting a camera that could take a great photograph of the outer atmosphere of the sun, that's hard to do. He also launched rocket payloads to carry out observations of the sun's corona throughout the late 1980s. A lot of his work in X-ray telescopes was used in the Chandra X-ray Observatory. He died in 2001 at age 65. Walker also served on the commission that investigated the 1986 Challenger disaster. I've talked about the commission before. I feel bad now that I left him off the list of amazing people who worked to figure out what went wrong. I'm, I'm talking about him now, though. <laughs> All right, let's move on to astronauts. NASA has selected 321 astronauts, and only 16 have been black. Even with just 16 people to talk about, I've left people off this list. I apologize for that. This really isn't an exhaustive overview. I wish I had that time and voice, but also, at a certain point, it's just a list of names of amazing African-American people in a profession that, historically, has not welcomed African-Americans. I'm more interested in digging into folk stories, even if it's just a surface skim of all that they've done. Let's start with Ed Dwight. He's working as a sculptor now, but he was in the Air Force in the 1960s and was chosen as the first black astronaut candidate in 1962. Unfortunately, he faced a lot of discrimination from his fellow astronauts, and after President Kennedy's death, government officials created such a hostile atmosphere that he resigned in 1966. I guess because he didn't finish his training, he's not considered the first African-American astronaut. Instead, Robert Henry Lawrence is the one listed as the first African-American astronaut in most sources that I found. 
He was selected as an astronaut for NASA's Manned Orbital Laboratory, which was the precursor to NASA's space shuttle program. But in 1967, he was serving as an instructor for a student pilot learning the steep descent glide technique in an F-104 plane. Lawrence was a second lieutenant in the Air Force and an extremely experienced pilot, but the student pilot crashed the jet, and Lawrence was killed in the crash. He was 32. Lawrence got a posthumous Purple Heart, and his name was inscribed in the Space Mirror Memorial at the Kennedy Space Center, which honors all astronauts who have lost their lives during space missions or during the training process for space missions. Guyon Bluford, I have mentioned before, he was the first African American to truly make it to space, and he's still alive today. He flew four shuttle missions, and his fellow astronauts, who graduated from the program in 1978, also included Dr. Ronald E. McNair, who died in the Challenger shuttle disaster in 1986, and Frederick Gregory, who flew three space missions on Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis. Gregory is also still alive. Is it morbid to note who's still alive? I think it's exciting to know these people are still around. I'm going to keep doing it. Bluford flew on the Challenger in 1983, and, after listening to the audio of the ascent, the crew realized that Bluford had laughed the entire way up. In his words, quote, it was such a fun ride. He flew three missions, including one after having surgery for a herniated disc, and retired from the astronaut corps in 1992. He worked on the investigation board that examined the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster of 2003. Frederick Gregory is the first African-American to pilot a spacecraft. This was uh, Challenger in 1985. And he was the first African-American to command a spacecraft, Space Shuttle Discovery, in 1989. He made it pretty far on NASA's administrative side, too. He was promoted to deputy administrator in 2002 and was NASA's acting head administrator in 2005 before he retired. Then we have Dr. Bernard Harris, Jr. He's the first African-American to walk in space. He's also a medical doctor and worked at NASA researching musculoskeletal physiology and disuse osteoporosis. If you've heard my episode on astronauts living long-term in space, you can guess how important his research was in this program. Astronauts on longer missions suffer bone density loss due to being weightless for long periods of time. Your bones need the weight of gravity acting on them to stay strong and healthy. Harris flew on the Columbia Space Shuttle in 1993 as a mission specialist, then was payload commander of the 1995 Discovery Space Shuttle mission, where he did indeed walk in space. He was an astronaut for 19 years and traveled more than 7.2 million miles in space. He has a foundation now, the Harris Foundation, that supports initiatives around education, health, and wealth. Specifically, the mission is to, quote, empower individuals, in particular minorities and others who are economically and or socially disadvantaged, to recognize their potential and pursue their dreams. The first African-American woman in space is Dr. Mae Jemison. She is also a medical doctor and speaks fluent Russian, Japanese, and Swahili. She's practiced medicine in Cambodian refugee camps, with the Peace Corps in West Africa, and in space. She was chosen for the astronaut program in 1987 and flew a Space Shuttle Endeavor collaborative mission in 1992 that lasted eight days and was performed in collaboration with the Japanese space program. What I think is really cool is how she had a vision for her career and she just did it. She says, quote, I always assumed I would go into space. And that's despite the fact that there were no women and it was all white males. And in fact, I thought that was one of the dumbest things in the world because I used to always worry, believe it or not, as a little girl, I was like, what would aliens think of humans? You know, these are the only humans. 
She doesn't even think astronaut was her hardest job. Peace Corps was harder, because she was on call all the time and had so many people's lives in her hands. God, I can't get over how much she's done. She's still doing stuff, too, mostly around promoting women and girls in STEM. All right, so I mentioned Robert McNair, who flew one successful mission on Challenger in 1984 before that disastrous mission in 1986 that ended his life. Another African-American astronaut, Michael P. Anderson, died in the Columbia disaster in 2003. Anderson was from Spokane, Washington, which is where a few people I know have lived or attended college. He flew his first space flight in 1998 in the Endeavor, and then flew a 16-day mission on the Columbia in 2003. Kind of disturbingly, this last mission was heavily guarded because there was the first Israeli astronaut on board, Ilan Rahman. Folks thought that Rahman's presence would inspire a terrorist attack. It didn't. The mission crew conducted their experiment successfully, working 24 hours a day in two alternating shifts. But the mission ended abruptly on February 1st, when Columbia suffered damage to her left wing during re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, and her crew perished. I feel like the deaths of astronauts are super publicized, and I've been talking about it a lot, so I do want to put out there that from the time of Yuri Gagarin's first space flight in 1961, only 21 people have died on space missions. That's worldwide, too. Four Soviet cosmonauts have died, and then all the rest were American. The last astronaut I'll talk about is former wide receiver Leland Melvin, who played for the Detroit Lions until he suffered a hamstring injury. Then he served as a NASA astronaut. He's the first former NFL player to go to space. <laughs> he flew on the space shuttle Atlantis for two missions in 2008 and 2009, and has written a book about his experiences called Chasing Space. I haven't read it, sadly, but... Dang, that sounds like a big career trajectory. <laughs> I also recognized him from his official NASA portrait, which he took with his two big dogs, Jake and Scout. African-American astrophysicists. Uh, this is kind of still related to astronomers, who I talked about earlier, but I wanted to bookend this episode with some more recent astronomy folks, and astrophysics is a fairly recent field in astronomy. So, I guess the structure of this has been practical, non-computer-using African-American astronomers, then African-American astronauts who benefited from that work, and now some African-American space theory badasses working on the cutting edge. I only have two to talk about, and I'll start with Dr. Beth A. Brown. She died in 2008, unexpectedly from a pulmonary embolism at age 39, but she had already established that she was going places. Like so many astronauts, Brown was inspired by Star Trek and received her Ph.D. in physics in 1998, working with data from the Röntgen satellite on X-ray observatories in elliptical galaxies. She was a great speaker and educator, there are a bunch of articles mourning her loss, and her work must have been incredible. Currently, Neil deGrasse Tyson is bringing astronomy and astrophysics to the forefront of the average American's mind with all the articles he's written for Nature magazine and his role as host for the updated revamp of Carl Sagan's show, Cosmos. He has also written a lot of books on space exploration, the universe's evolution, and other huge topics. Tyson is the director of the Hayden Planetarium, he researches star formation, exploding stars, dwarf galaxies, and the structure of the Milky Way. He's served on several presidential commissions that looked at the trajectory of the U.S. space program. 
I also learned that he has his own podcast, Star Talk, which is available on iTunes. All about the podcasts. I haven't heard it, but it looks like he gets celebrities and comedians on, and they talk about various space topics. So, kind of cool interview style. So total, that's seven astronomers and nine astronauts I highlighted today. It definitely doesn't feel like enough. There are also support people at NASA who are black and currently working as programmers, administrators, engineers, tech experts, biologists. NASA is not the only organization that deals in space. It's not even the only organization in America that works with space research. It is, however, an extremely big organization, and the most credible because it receives federal funding and has been doing its best to promote diversity in the workplace. For the next episode, I just got a bunch of Chuck Yeager stuff out of the library, including a couple documentaries. Thank you, Multnomah County Public Library, for all of your contributions to my show. I'm trying to remember all these potential ideas. That's a big list to get through. Uh, The Sophia Observatory, which I mentioned in the last episode. Transit of Venus is still waiting for me to stop reading young adult fantasy novels and get on those space books. Um... My mom told me about blazars and asked what quasars were when we hung out on Valentine's Day. And aren't quasars and blazars such a great example of astronomers having fun with naming conventions? I thought machos and wimps was fun, but now this is a new duo stepping up to have a good time. (laughs) Maybe you have something you want to hear me talk about that's related to space. I'm kind of set for now, but I'll take suggestions over Tumblr, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. Go ahead and subscribe on iTunes, too, and if you enjoy what I do, maybe give me a rating and a review over there. That was too many rhyming words. Anyway, a review would be great. Just to keep up the good work, or you haven't talked about Tico Brahe in a while. Do you still love him? I do, in case you were wondering. I always will. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it Windsor's my tie knot. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to Balthus Not Your Tie Too. (laughs) The next episode will be up in three weeks, unfortunately. I have some work travel the day that I normally post, so look for episode 23 on March 19th. Only one episode in March. Dang it. Sorry, y'all. I'll work extra hard to make it a good one. You can find my sources on this episode music credits, a timeline of all the amazing African-American space lovers I talked about, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. (laughs) ¶¶